We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, and there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Kyle. Well, good afternoon again, everybody. It's great to be with you. Uh, For those of you who are new, joining us for the first time, as John mentioned earlier, uh, wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, maybe this is your first time in a church, Uh, Maybe you don't like church. Uh, Maybe you've been going to church for a long time. We're really glad that you're here and just hope that you get to see who Jesus is. Uh, He's who we're all about here. And my name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. And what we're in the middle of is a three-part series on generosity. Generosity. And as we said last week, the reason why we're doing this is because we want Jesus's priorities to be our priorities. And when you read the gospel accounts, you see that second only to the topic of the kingdom of God, Jesus talked about money and possessions more than everything else. So he talked about it more than church attendance. He talked about it more than prayer and personal morality and social justice, all really important things. But we have to ask, why did Jesus talk about money and possessions more than all those things? And it has to be not because he was gaining wealth for himself. We know Jesus was poor. Uh, but because Jesus knows there is an inseparable, inseparable link between our faith and our finances. There is a thick connection between the health of our hearts and how much we give generously. And so I know it can be an uncomfortable topic, and sometimes I feel like the toes are really big in here and I'm stepping on them. I promise I'm just trying to communicate what the scriptures themselves say about generosity. And as we look at this passage in particular, so I love how, so Paul opens by, he's encouraging, we'll get a little bit into the context in a little bit, but he's, he's encouraging the Corinthians to give. He's saying, you know the Macedonians and how they are known for their generosity? Like, as we're here, we're still in the early stages of a church. You know, we're only two and a half years old. I would love for if someone was writing about our church 50 years from now, 200 years from now, one of the things they would say is, you know doxology, how they are known for their generosity. I mean, just wouldn't that be amazing? So that, that's my hope and heart for us. And so as we look at this passage, it's the most extended treatment, like most continuous extended treatment on generosity in the New Testament. Um, so there's a lot here we won't get to look at, but we'll look at its main themes. 
uh, i.e., what should be the motives and practices of our giving? And so we'll look at it, at it under these three headings. So first, we'll see past grace. Second, we'll see future harvest. And then number three, in light of those things, we'll see our present practices. Right, so the first two things, past grace, future harvest, those are going to be our motives for giving. And then in light of those things, how do we actually practice on the ground generosity? Okay, so first, past grace. So I came across a piece this week, and the article was giving reasons for why you should donate money to charity. And here are a few of the reasons that it gave. So it said, first, number one, you should give your money because it earns you respect in the eyes of others. Number two, you should give generously, and this is so our social media moment, is that you should give generously because you can publicize yourself, right? Like, oh, I'm just so, so humbled to have given $10,000 to my favorite charity. Like, are you? Are you humbled? Mm. And then number three, you should give generously because you get a tax deduction. Now, there is a Christian-esque version of this, okay? And so some of you, or maybe all of you, have heard the Christian-esque version of this same article, So let's just give two reasons. You should give generously so that you don't feel guilty when you see everybody around you giving and you know that you're not giving anything. Or number two, you should give generously so that God stops being dissatisfied with you. You know neither of those reasons are in the Bible? Here's what is, okay? Here's the the, the kernel of what Paul's getting at. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Why should you give? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. I love how this starts. You know what? You know, not an idea, not a philosophy. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus. The same Jesus who gives you a stable and rich identity. The same Jesus who knows you better than you know yourself. This Jesus who gives you the best reason for living. This Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. What an awesome gospel summary, right? So this Jesus, though he was rich, though he had all the wealth of heaven, and he was doing just fine except for one thing. He was separated from his people because they had separated themselves from him. So he leaves it all behind and becomes poor, not just in the economic sense, but he becomes poor by being ridiculed and betrayed and he suffers, culminating at the cross, giving himself in our place, rising in. Why? So that you who are spiritually poor, you who by nature and by choice have rejected Jesus through his poverty, through his suffering, you might become rich. You may have his splendor. You may have his communion with God. You may have his wealth. That's why we give. Okay, and so here, Paul, like a little bit of the context here, the Corinthians are They have amazing spiritual gifts. They have eloquent speakers in their church. They have wild church services. But Paul says, one of the things you're lacking is you're stingy. Like you think you're so spiritually mature, but you're stingy. And so what he does is he, what's going on here is there's a relief effort needed for the Jerusalem churches, um, Jewish churches back in Jerusalem, which was the hub of the Jesus movement. And the Corinthians are a Gentile church more on the outskirts of the early Christian movement. And so he's urging them to give. And how does he urge them to give? He gives them the example of the Macedonians, which we'll look at in a little bit, but then he points to Jesus. So notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, 
Give to this relief effort so you stop having that nagging sense of guilt. Give to this relief effort so you can get a bigger tax deduction. (laughs) No, give because of how Jesus has first given himself for you, past grace. Now, I saw this article, I think this happened in 2013, 2014, that made me think of this dynamic that Paul is talking about here, past grace. And it took place in Winnipeg, up in Canada, and it was at a Tim Hortons. I don't know if any of you all have been there. Apparently, it's the Dunkin' Donuts of Canada. And apparently, early in the morning, this lady decided not just to pay for her donut and coffee, but for the car behind her. And this simple act ended up setting off a chain reaction where 226 people (laughs) paid for the meal of the person behind them, right? Like, I would love to think that I wouldn't be that Scrooge who was person number 227, right, who stopped the chain, but you never know. And what's the point here? It's that when you receive an unexpected and undeserved act of generosity, it makes you generous. It's just, it's a knee-jerk reaction. You can't help it right? As thunder follows lightning, so somebody being generous to you begets more generosity. And I think if Paul were writing the church of doxology, I don't think he'd say we're stingy, because I know many of you guys are so generous. Um, But here's what he'd say, regardless of how generous we are collectively. I think he'd say, if a simple act of buying a donut, as amazing as donuts are, I mean, let's be honest, but If a simple act of buying someone a donut catalyzes a waterfall of generosity for for over three hours, 226 vehicles, what kind of generosity would explode in your life and in the life of this church if it grasped you either for the first time or anew what Jesus the Lord on high has given up to be generous to you? And so that's the first thing we see is our first motivation must be and always be not guilt, not shame. It's past grace. What has Jesus done? Okay, so that's number one, past grace. But he doesn't just point us to the past. He also points us to the future. And so here, go ahead. Hopefully you have a Bible with you. Uh, Just scroll over to the next page to chapter nine because it's all one section. We didn't have the whole thing read. And go ahead and look at verse 6. We're we're looking at future harvest now. Chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So Paul is using a farming metaphor. And this is way more helpful than I initially thought it was. So think about a seed. The potential of a seed is useless to you if you keep it on your kitchen table, right? So how does a seed benefit you? It only benefits you when you do something that to the untrained eye looks obnoxious by throwing it away. Because when you throw it away, when you throw it into the ground, right, that's when the seed benefits you, right? It becomes fruit or vegetables, something you can eat. And so as Paul's using this seed metaphor, like one of the ways he's putting it as anyone who knows how farming works, if you saw somebody take a seed and seal it in a safe or a jar or put it under a mattress. You wouldn't even necessarily think they're stingy or selfish. You'd think they were foolish (laughs) because the only way that a seed gives you wealth is by giving it away, right? And so now bring over the, the metaphor to finances. He's saying, 
the way to get true wealth is by giving your money away, right? Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So we have to ask, if we give generously of our money, right, to the church, to the poor, to those who need it, what is the bountiful harvest that we get? And I don't think the answer can be money, right, like a lot of prosperity preachers would have you believe. I think this for a few reasons. Um, one just personal experience has showed me there have been seasons where I've been really financially generous, and I haven't received a waterfall of money just like pouring on top of me. On the contrary, there have been seasons where I've been stingy, and God has blessed me. I mean, financially, relationally, emotionally. I think just per- so personal experience has shown me, like, I can't try to manipulate the grace of God. Okay, I'm going to give a lot this weekend so that you give me a lot in return. But not just personal experience, just looking at, as we should do, looking at the context of the passage. So think about farming. When you throw a seed into the ground, you get back a different substance. Because when you put in a seed, it's not just like a bunch of seeds come spewing out of the ground like Old Faithful, right? No, you, you get a different substance. You get vegetables. You get fruit. And so if we're giving our money away, that this can't mean we're getting the same substance, i.e. money, back. But he is giving us the impression that we do become wealthy. So what does he mean? And what we looked at last week is we know, I mean, just common sense would say, there is no greater form of wealth than loving and being loved. Okay, and so what, we, what, what Paul's writing here is, first of all, what's one of the future harvests that we get in terms of wealth? Well, one's a more immediate harvest, you could call it, and we're just going based off of Jesus' teachings. For example, in Matthew 6, he says, um, wherever your heart will be, wherever your treasure is, that there your heart will be also, right? In other words, wherever you put your treasure, your heart will form toward what, wherever you're giving your money, right? So if you're just spending your money on yourself, you're going to become a more self-absorbed, self-centered person. But if instead, if you don't see your wealth as a means of just shoring up security and personal happiness, but in love for God and in love for other people, you give it away, who are you becoming like, right? You're becoming more loving, i.e. you're becoming more like God, right? Which is the truest form of wealth in the deepest sense. So that's the first harvest we reap. When we give generously, it actually changes us to make us more happy and generous like God. And it'll have so many ripple effects beyond just our money, right? And how we treat those closest to us at our work and so forth. So that's one But the second, and here's what we see explicitly in this passage. Let's look at verse 9. He's talking about the harvest that we reap when we give generously. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So that verse, you may have a footnote in your Bible that says it's an Old Testament quote from Psalm 112. So he has distributed freely, i.e. with his or her money. His righteousness endures forever. And we hear the word righteousness, we often think, you know, personal piety. But the term righteousness in the Old Testament refers to something far more full than that. Uh, What it means is right relationships, okay, when relationships are happening as they should be. So this individual who's distributing their money away freely, his righteousness endures forever. What it's saying is, is this individual is giving their money to the poor into the kingdom of God, right relationships are beginning to happen, right? People are beginning to get lifted out of poverty, families are being put back together. And if you think about your own life, probably often the most painful points in your life haven't, I mean, maybe from a medical condition, 
Um, but for most of you, prob- it's probably relational pain, right, that, that you've experienced that contributes to the most agony in your life. And giving generously is producing righteousness in the community. And now we extrapolate this, and this is, this is a little bit more of a lofty point, but I, I hope you guys begin to get it. Okay, so Second Peter 3.13, and we should have the verse up there. Uh, Peter is talking about the future when God fully renews the world. And it says, we're anticipating the new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells, or wherein dwelleth righteousness, as I think the King James Version puts it. And what, what Peter's saying is when God fully renews the world, all relationships will be put right. All relationships. So relationships between the classes, relationships between ethnicities and racial groups, relationships between us and the environment, global warning, warming won't be a problem, relationships, relationships between us and animals, like how amazing is that going to be, right? All relationships are going to be put right. And so we put this together, and what, what Paul is saying here is when we give our money to the church, right, which is the main way by which God brings people into his kingdom, right, where we can taste that in the future and begin to have real foretaste of it now, and as you give to the poor to care for them, you are actually contributing to the renewal of the world. This isn't high theory, like, I can't think of a more motivating reason to give than to know in the new heaven and new earth, like, I don't want to get there and see all the beauty that's happening and, and just think, why in the world didn't I give more of this? And I think, I think in heaven, you know, we're not going to be feeling guilt or shame, but I think there will be a, an increased sense of joy we'll have knowing we got to partake with Jesus in renewing the world. And so what we get here is as we reflect with joyful hearts on Jesus' past grace, and then we look with joyful anticipation, right, of the new earth that God's bringing about, along with the harvest of being made more like God through generosity, that is what motivates us to give in the present. Okay, so we could stop there, right? I mean, already just thinking about that, but there's more. There's more, all right? So, because now we got to take it out of the motivation and get into the practices, especially since we didn't do this last week, and Paul's really hammering this home in Corinthians. So, in light of past grace, future harvest, what are the nuts and bolts of how we give in the present? And the first thing we see see here about giving in the present is it's proportional giving. Proportional giving. And we see this in verse 12. So for if the readiness to give, if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Put simply, if you've been given much, give much. If you've been given a little, give a little. And this is both freeing and challenging. And it's freeing because if you have a little, okay, and Paul isn't saying if you have a little because you have two Tesla payments and you upgrade your wardrobe every week, <laughs> okay, but just if you have a little, right, through your income, other means, so forth, and you can only give a little, you know you shouldn't feel disappointed about that. Or if you're in a season of, say, unemployment or underemployment or medical hardship. I mean, I've heard horror stories about people being told by their church in the middle of financial trouble that they need to keep giving like these huge percentages. Okay, if you're in a season where you only have a little, then give a little. 
there is a wondrous pattern in the kingdom of God where, A, it seems that those who have the least tend to be the most generous, and also those who give the least, God multiplies abundantly to use. Like, there's this incident in Mark 12 where Jesus is watching people give. Maybe we should do that. I have Jesus standing up here, right, as we're, as we're giving. So Jesus is watching people give, and wealthy people are dumping all their, their cash in the offering box, and a poor widow comes up, and she puts a penny in. And Jesus looks around, and he says, this woman has given more than anyone else. And the natural response is, she didn't give the most. You know, she gave a penny. Everybody else, you know, were given just millions upon millions. And the response to that is, forget who you're dealing with. Right, because this is the same Jesus who can take just a few little loaves of bread, a few fish, and like multiply it to feed thousands. So Jesus will take your little and use abundantly in his kingdom. So it, it's freeing, but it also is challenging because, as Jesus says elsewhere, for those who have much, much will be required. And so for all of us, especially in this area where I realize there, I mean, there are a number of people in our congregation who don't make a lot of money. There are a lot of people in North, Northern Virginia, right, who don't. But generally, often, this area just makes me often forget. I just think it's normal to see the cars and homes that I see here, right? And so it's easy to forget, like, I'm in the top 1%. And so we always have to check ourselves, have I been given a lot? And if so, give much, right? But it's proportional. So number one, we give proportionally. Number two, we give sacrificially. So we see this in verse 2 of chapter 8. For in a severe test of affliction, this is speaking of the Macedonian Christians, this is where the church of Philippi is, right? If you all have read Philippians, that church is in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And then here's the key. For they gave according to their means, proportional, as I can testify, and beyond their means, i.e. they gave not only proportionally, but they gave sacrificially. And I wish we had time to, because there's uh, so much goodness here, but somehow severe affliction, abundance of joy, extreme poverty equals sacrificial giving. (laughs) That's not usually how we tend to view, but this is what the Macedonian Christians did. In other words, sacrificial giving happens when you give so much that you feel it, right? So there are certain things that you normally like to do, but you don't get to do because you're responding to past grace and anticipating future harvest, right? There should be maybe vacations or restaurants or just, you know, fill in the blank where you have more of a principled restraint because you're giving. And one of the times where I got to experience this from someone else, so when I first entered ministry, I had to raise my own salary. And so I'm just reaching out to everyone. And this particular couple happened to be former clients of mine in my old job. And I didn't even know they were believers, you know, until this. They found out we we're starting a church. I'm like, we'd love to help. I'm like, awesome. So I, so I go over there, and, you know, they ask, okay, you know, what's the, tell me your story, vision, mission, blah, blah, blah. And at the end of the conversation, you know, I'm expecting to, you know, maybe get a little bit, which would be great. And I, I almost fell over when I, they didn't, they gave me just, the, they handed me the check, so I saw the number right away. And I started looking around at their home, which wasn't a particularly nice home. I mean, it was a modest home. I'm like, can you guys afford, like, is this check going to balance? <laughs> like, can you afford to be giving me this? And we just got talking, and what they said was, so they shared, you know, we're just very fortunate that between our incomes, we are very wealthy people. And, but what we've resolved to do as a family 
is as our income increases, and it looks like our income's only going to be increasing, I'm like, can I join your job instead of, <laughs> yeah. But they said, like, we're going to keep our expenses steady, but then just keep giving. And our goal is what we would love to do, like we're at about maybe 30% tithing of our income now. We would love to get to the point where we're giving away 50% of our income. Now, is Jesus and Paul saying you need to be giving 50% of your income away? No. But, I mean, this is such a good example to look at, right? I think we should consider it more than we do. And so maybe just a question to ask yourself is, if somebody were to, if you were to open up your bank app on your phone and show it to someone, would they have a lot of questions? You know, maybe asking you something like, did something ridiculous happen to you? Or do you know something that I don't? because of where your money is going? And your answer could be yes. And his name's Jesus. Because we've been touched by his grace as we anticipate future harvest, we give sacrificially. At least we give sacrificially. Number three, third practice as we give, we give cheerfully. Cheerfully. So we see this in verse eight of chapter eight. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. So I say this not as a command. There's something really important to Paul that he knows the, that the Corinthians know. He's not commanding them to give. It's interesting because he commands them to do a lot of other things, just food for thought. But he, he wants them to know he's not commanding them to give. And then also look in chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So as I heard one pastor put it, when you go to give of your money, there should be a tremendous difference in your attitude between giving to the church, giving to the poor, and paying your taxes. Right? Because think about how you pay your taxes. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I imagine most of you, it's, I'm going to give as little as I possibly can, and hey, we're all for that, right? Rendering to Caesar, what is Caesar's, but we don't have to give a penny more than that, right? Um, and it's probably not with a cheerful, I remember when I got my first job, and I told my dad, you know, like, oh, my salary is, you know, like $24,000, I'm going to be, be getting, you know, two, like $2,000-ish a month, and he goes, oh, you sweet soul. <laughs> you know, I get my paycheck, I'm like, where did all my money? He goes, yep, yep. That's your taxes. <laughs> and so there should be a huge difference, right, in how we pay our taxes and then how we give to the Lord, right? It should be done cheerfully. And as we, as we think about this point, um, so much could be said here, but it is so important to Paul that the Corinthians don't give because they have to, but because they want to. I mean, there, there's something so central to the Lord. There's something so central to how grace works that we should give not because we have to, but because we want to. And so, for some of you, I, I wonder if, is the main way that you relate to God, like, all right, you're just up there and you tell me all the stuff I have to do and so I'm going to forgive, I'm going to give generously, but just because you're telling me to do it. Like, did you know that God wants something so much better for you than to see him as just this, you know, angry boss 
upstairs is just waiting for you to mess up in terms of giving too little or being too uncharitable? No, because God actually cares as much, if not more, about the why you do it as he does what you do. And for somebody that maybe just be an entirely new way that you think about relating to God. I mean, so many appeals to give inside the church and outside the church have been done through guilt or easing of conscience. You know, don't you know you're a privileged American, so you need to give so you can feel a little bit better about this American lifestyle you have? You know, that type of motivation isn't in the scriptures. And so as you think about giving cheerfully, because sometimes this verse really annoys me, because I'm like, if I'm not cheerful, how do I make myself cheerful? Here's just a couple things to think through. One, if, if you're not giving cheerfully, I should encourage you to go back and look at the first two points Paul talked about, past grace, future harvest. Maybe that hasn't ever ignited your soul before, right, in, in terms of why God wants you to give. Maybe you're used to operating like everything, everywhere you try to obey God, whether it's in the realm of sex or your job or relationships or money, it's always just because, well, I guess I have to or else he's going to be upset. Just examine those things and work through those things with the Lord. But third, my encouragement would, would, be, to you, would be to you, and maybe this is paradoxical because he's saying, I'm not commanding you to do it cheerfully, is even if you don't feel cheerful, just to start giving. And here's why. Because I think especially in our cultural moment, which is all about, you know, it's the age of authenticity. Um, there's some fine parts, you know, about that movement. But sometimes how it plays out with our giving is, I'm not going to give until I feel like it, because that wouldn't be authentic. Okay. I mean, imagine if every time a friend called me, or my wife, Kelsey, or my son, he's like, hey, Dad, I would just love to play with you. I'm like, well, I'm not really feeling like it right now, so it would be inauthentic of me to play with you or hang out with you, because I'm just not there yet. <laughs> He'd be like, no, you just play with him. Right, and as, as Kelsey and I often walk through couples in premarital counseling, one of the best principles I've learned is acts of love lead to feelings of love. Is if you just begin loving someone that's really hard to love, you'll actually begin to love them. And same with giving. If you just begin to give when you're not feeling cheerful, the cheerfulness will often follow, if not always. Because you were made, I mean, your soul was made to expand when you give generously. Okay, so we give proportionally, sacrificially, cheerfully, and then finally, so proportional, sacrificial, um, cheerful, and then actual, actual giving. Let's look at verse 10. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who, he, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it well, giving, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Sometimes Paul seems more confusing than necessary, but here's what he's getting at. About a year ago, they made a promise to give. But Paul knows now that the time is coming for to actually collect their offering, they may not want to do it. You know, if you've ever had a friend, I, I, maybe this is just rosy retrospection, but it seems more common with millennials and Gen Z. Like, how many times have you asked someone to do something with you, and then it comes time, like, the day before, or the hour before, and they're like, oh, I can no longer hang out, Sorry. <laughs> And you realize, like, often it's because they just no longer feel like it, you know, or just all of a sudden, you know, their favorite artist is in town, and they got surprise tickets. So Paul, Paul knows this is, a, like, it's easy for us to, I think all of us want to be generous, 
But when it comes time to actually being generous, there's a gap there. Maybe in no other area has there been an ideal held by so many and yet fulfilled by so few. And so what Paul is saying here is, basically what he's saying is, you have nine penguins, you have ten penguins on an iceberg, nine decide to jump off, how many are left? Ten. Why? Because the nine only decided to jump off, right? They didn't actually do it. So he's taking, say, take your decision to give, your desire to give, which I believe is there, and just start giving. And so just two closing questions for you all. As you think about your giving, is it proportional, sacrificial, cheerful, actual? And you know your answer can be yes. Like Jesus does not ask you to have this perpetual dissatisfaction with what you're doing. Hey, the answer can be yes. Okay, but if the answer is no, as we said last week, you should have no shame right? because that's not how Jesus works. Okay, shame can motivate us to give us one time or a few, few weeks, but it doesn't change a heart. And so if not, just a, an encouragement here is what, just what can, what can you start with? Okay, and if you're looking for a number, come on, pastor, like get practical, stop being theoretical. I just, I mean, whole nother teaching series, right? But in the New Testament, the Old Testament tithe of 10% would be the starting point for generosity, right? And then working up from there. But there, I'm sure there are many of you here who are like, I really don't want to even give 10%, or I can't give 10%, so what do I do? And I would tell you the same thing that people ask me when they say, dude, I can't pray for 30 minutes in the morning. Are you kidding me? I'd say, then start with three. (laughs) Start with three minutes and just see how God moves you and changes you. And so if you can't give 10% or just that readiness isn't there, what, what can you start with? Is it 2%? Is it 5%? Right, and then walk with people in community as you grow. And so in closing, I just want to say, um, you know, maybe in a series like this, it's easy for you to say, well, Steve, you're a pastor. <laughs> like, of course you want us to give. So I just want to make it so clear. A, if we said this last week, if you're not a believer, we're not asking for your money. Okay, we just want you to know the Lord Jesus. Two, if you're a visitor, if this isn't your church home, if you're just visiting in town, we're also not asking for your money. We do hope you grow in generosity at whatever church you're at. Okay, but I promise, and I, I wish I could tell you some stories about just how God's worked in my life. If I, if I wasn't a pastor, I'd still be saying the same thing. Because as we sung earlier, right, the final song before we had the sermon, right, Open up my eyes and wonder, right? Fill me with your heart and lead me in your love toward those around me. We're never more joyful when we're doing those things. And one of the best ways to be filled with wonder and with God's heart is to be, is to be giving generously. That's a promise from the Lord himself. So let's grow in that together. Let's pray.